0: Great. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Well, welcome uh, to Hiawatha. Back for a lot of you and maybe some of you for the first time. Welcome to our church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, along with Spence. You heard from him uh, earlier. And uh, we, I, um, I think Peter may have alluded to this, but we are in a series right now uh, called Open Mic. So uh, for us, uh, we primarily preach through books of the Bible, uh, expositionally, uh, A to Z, verse, verse by verse and so forth, or chapter by chapter, Uh, We call these open mic segments, though, uh, kind of in-betweens, where uh, the pastor, elder preaching, can preach on whatever they want, hence the name uh, open mic. So um, uh, we are going to, but just so you guys know, in terms of where we're headed, uh, two weeks from now, so we have two more of these open mic, including today, open mic sermons, Uh, two weeks from now, we'll be in the book of Zechariah, which is Old Testament prophet, which I'm really excited about doing that book with you guys. We have not preached through a prophet uh, in, I think it was 2000 nine. We did Jonah, which almost doesn't count because it's it's narrative. So uh, we did Hosea a year before that. It's just been a long time. It's a great segment of the Old Testament that is full of Jesus. And we'll uh, talk about that. And if if you're new to that segment or if it's just been a hard uh, section for you to read, we'll talk about how to read it uh, the first Sunday in in two weeks and probably throughout the series too. So uh, but really looking forward to that uh, with you guys coming up. Uh, but for today, uh, today, my, so my original plan was to talk about, uh, I, I bounced all around, sexual identity and sexual sin uh, stuff, uh, which we um, talk about fairly often, it just comes up a lot in the Bible, and it's, uh, but topically, it's nice to address every once in a while. I am going to do that, I kind of switched a bit, I, I'm going to do that, you'll see here in a second, but more as a launch pad to talking about a broader identity as Christians and how important, it's so important, uh, the Bible pounds us home, how incredibly important it is to rest in our God-defined identity as saved, loved, adopted, cleansed, forgiven children of the King. And so the, the broader question then is, who are we uh, truly? At the core, who are we as Christians? And I'm going to address Christians primarily today. If you're not a Christian yet, you'll still get a lot out of this because you'll learn more about the faith and what it means to be saved and uh, why the Bible talks so much about identity issues uh, in, uh, in the Bible. But I'm going to address Christians, those of you who are saved directly because you are saved and you have an identity that's particular and God-given and very important to remember and something you probably all walked in here forgetting. I know I did. At least forgetting pieces to that. And that's why the Bible is such a great book of remembrance. And uh, we'll, we'll get some of that later too. But, but the question of who we are truly, it's, it's not just a philosophical or ontological question, but a theological one as well. And, and it, it's actually, I was thinking this past week, it's cool because it's, it's an intersection point That the church has with the world. What I mean by that is both the world and the church say knowing who you are is very important. Uh, The values lined up. Uh, Now, as we'll talk about, we we go about identity issues very differently, but the values are very similar. I just watched uh, Moana. Have you guys seen Moana, the animated film out there now uh, with my family last weekend, which was probably the busiest time at the Riverview Theater I've ever, uh, ever seen. It did, they delayed the movie 15 minutes just for people to get in. Which I thought, what theater kind of does that? Only the Riverview, you know, probably do that. They'd actually delay the, the, delay the thing as people streamed in. But, um, but it was great. A great movie, uh, up for best animated film, I believe. Didn't win, uh, but, I'd, but I'd recommend it. We watched the movie, and if you guys have seen it, the, the central motif to the film is knowing who you are. Uh, you know, in, in fact, knowing who you are was directly connected with the main character's ability to save the world and bring resolution to the story. It it was that central, and it is for many stories. You could almost close your eyes and point at a story that's just out there, and chances are there's going to be some kind of level of knowing who you are motif or theme. Uh, It's just a very big deal, and it has been, but it it just is today in culture, especially man versus self type dramatic conflicts. Uh, You see it in those type of um, conflicts and and themes in in stories and movies and books, so um, now, the, the difference, though, between the church and the world, so I, the, the question is, I, I want to pose here, and I'll answer this right away, is identity subjectively chosen or objectively given? Now, I, I think the difference, Then I, I mentioned this before, but the, the difference, the value is the same, uh, how we go about it is different. The difference between the world and the church lies pretty much right here. Uh, the church believes God tells us who we are. It's objective, uh, the world, uh, whereas the world believes, we determine who we are. So we, we'll call this, Christians believe in objective identity. It's outside of us. It's placed upon us. It's predetermined. We're chosen unto it. We're saved unto it. It's a gift by grace. Uh, whereas the world believes in subjective identity. So it comes from inside of us subjectively. We, we choose it. We um, work for it. Um, now, now, there are exceptions to this. I know it's a generalization, but that's the point. It's generally true. And it's not going away. It's at least becoming more true, I think, as, as time goes on. Um, and we'll probably see that increase a, as time does, in fact, uh, go on. And and there can be a blend here as well. I think as Christians, we, um, to varying degrees, we can think like the world. And we're called away from doing that, of course. We can, we can think like we, we were before we were saved. And we have to kind of be trained out of that or get into the habit of not, by God's grace, of not thinking that way anymore. And so this I think why is one of the big reasons you have so much of the Bible written towards who you are in Christ is because they're all written to Christians and we'll see this today we're forgetful and knowing who we are in Jesus that that phrase in him or in Christ because of what he's done is that we'll get to that but it's a key factor in this whole thing is so critical for forgetful people uh, like like us. So, so I know there are exceptions to this on both sides. It's a generalization, but generally understand that. The church believes God tells us who we are, uh, whereas the world believes in more of that subjectively defined um, reality uh, when it comes to identity. And, and we see this on a number of levels, I think, uh, in just in the world. Uh, one of the most pronounced I want to touch on for a minute, just because it's, it is very pronounced these days. Uh, I see it everywhere. It's becoming a, a bigger deal, I think, in our kids, Aletha, Aletha's in my kids' school. Um, and just out there, but um, one of the more pronounced is gender, uh, gender fluidity uh, today, where the world's mantra and perspective is a, is a bit more, at least increasingly, uh, you decide. Whether people believe that or not, the world's mantra and perspective is at least that's okay if people want to go there and decide. So, you know, don't let a reproductive organ or a chromosome or a God determine who you are, whereas the church uh, would say God decides. Uh, and maybe at a secondary level, our parents decided when they wanted to have a child or if they were surprised, surprise. Uh, but the point is, it wasn't us. We, di- we didn't decide to be born. We didn't decide to be a, a man or a woman, boy or a girl. Uh, we didn't decide that the features that we had, uh, they were all predetermined. They, they were given as a, uh, as a gift. So, so our existence broadly, I mean, gender is just one example, but our existence broadly is given by grace. It's not worked for or chosen. Uh, we would say. God says. Bible says. The church generally says. Um, you know, when our daughter Aletha's uh, and my daughter Jane was born ten years ago, we didn't find out the gender. Uh, with the other two, we did, and uh, we liked both. I don't, you guys probably don't care, but
1: we, we we liked both. People ask
0: us sometimes, which is better. Like we thought both were great, but um, the but with Jane, the you know when she was born the doctors and nurses said immediately, without hesitation, and with 100% certainty, it's a girl. And we rejoiced. Uh, you know, they, they didn't say, it's a TBD later, <laughs> you know, kind of thing, when, uh, when Jane's old enough to choose for herself. It just doesn't happen. It's lo- logically, right? It's, it's uh, kind of, in one sense, silly. Uh, but it's the same with my son, Emmett, even at the ultrasound, which we, so we did find out with him, you know, I remember the nurse just saying, oh, it's uh, it's uh, another girl, and then five seconds went by, and she said, oh, "Wait a minute, what's that?" <laughs> you know, and uh, I guess so. We had five seconds without having another girl, and um, and we did eventually with Helen, but but Emmet, our second born, was a boy. So so ge- his gender was determined when my Y chromosome met up with the X chromosome, and the embryo was male. Uh, you know, it's um, is that too revealing? I don't. It seems kind of weird to say that. <laughs> I don't know why. It's just I felt weird, um, but. So, it, it, but it, it's the same with um, things like height. You know, I, I can't, I can't just say that I'm six five. You know, in you know, and the world, just can't. Oh, so that's yeah. You're, if you think that Chris, then you can be six five. It's I can't do can't do that. You know, my height. I'm five eight, and I like to be taller, but but I'm not. And it's uh, that reality of my five ness came from outside me. It, it was predetermined. It was it was given. So now, just as an aside to all this, I I am going somewhere with this, and I'll get there in a sec, but as an aside or disclaimer, the the scope of today's sermon is not going to be maybe as comprehensive as you think or maybe some of you want, and so if you want to talk more about this, just please let us know. It's probably going to elicit some questions, and uh, if it does, great, Um, but just know that we're going to poke at a couple of things here. It's a bit of a hodgepodge sermon in some ways, but um, but let us know if this uh, raises questions. Also, understand this, and this is a big disclaimer. Understand that gender confusion, transgender orientation, and homosexual orientation themselves are a different issue entirely. We've talked to that in the past. This is going to be a sermon on that, that those orientations themselves. Uh, you know, if that's you or uh, someone you know, I mean, just understand, we'll speak about our church now, but you're in a safe place. God loves you dearly, and uh, your, His grace is sufficient for you, and, and you're loved. But all this is to say that identity is ultimately given. You know, whether we feel one gender or not, we are one gender by God's design. And it's good in his eyes. The the truth about us comes from outside of us. And and that's, I think, a, uh, you know, that that can be a very offensive thought, a troubling thought, but also a very simultaneously encouraging thought at the same time, which is kind of classic theology, by the way, if you're, new to these things. Jesus will say something sometimes, and the Bible will, and you'll say, that's incredibly offensive. That's the best thing I've ever, I've ever heard <laughs> at the same time. You know, or right after that, it's just kind of common to have both feelings, uh, sometimes even at, at the same time. Uh, but I think an encouraging thought, especially amidst, you know, a sea of uh, what might be confusing thoughts, or feelings, or worldly agendas, or expectations, or comparison games, or maybe uh, bad experiences with parents who didn't uh, love some of you very well at all. God provides this stabilizing rock on which to stand when we're tossed around by such things. You are what God intends, and he loves you. You know, what, what we feel about ourselves isn't necessarily completely inconsequential. It's just not nearly as important as what God says. And and that's this kind of um, battle that that Christians spiritually face throughout their lives, is this battle between you know, my old self, what I was, the lies I listened to, and now who I am now in Christ and the truth that he's speaking to me. And they're different. They are contradictory. They cannot go together. And, and a lot of our experiences in, in, in life as believers will be battling that, you know, going back to the old and re-entertaining lies from the pit of hell and lies about ourselves. And then as we wrestle, I know it's not true, but I really think it is. And even as we're reading this or hearing this or wanting this over here, and um, and so again, I think that's why our Bibles are composed the way they are in part, it, you know, is Jesus is really alive, he really died, he really raised you with him, he really recreated you when you believed in him, you are actually a new person, and, um, and we can hear that a thousand times, but not feel it, you know, and not really take it in, uh, and so we pray, and so we wrestle together with these things, and so we work hard at the the work of belief sometimes and uh, a lot of times and uh, as we wrestle with grace. So, so here, here's where I want to start with all this today, why we're beginning here. Um, so and actually I'll get to this in a second. So here's where, here's where I want to start with this today. It's not just because it's true and important for the church to stand firm on. Uh, it is, but because of how it relates to the gospel and, and to the greater idea of our identities in Christ. Because here's the thing, in, in Jesus' ministry in John 3.3, 3, Jesus has this really great interaction with Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee of the Jews, a spiritual leader. Uh, he comes to Jesus and asks questions, and, and this exchange is mysterious and beautiful. Uh, but Jesus says to him in John 3.3, 3, he says, Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which is to say, in order to be saved, we have to be born again. In order to enter God's kingdom, which is synonymous with this idea of salvation, in order to be saved, we have to be born again. And I think Nicodemus's question is just, is just even, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? And this is what he gives back, which is classic Jesus. You know, it's like, yes or no it would have been fine, but it gives me this to wrestle with. But. And so Nicodemus wrestles with it. We'll look at that in, in a second. But, but feel the weight of this for a second. Think about this. Uh, what this is saying in part is our first births typify and point to our second births he's saying when you were converted it was kind of like a birth happened so to be saved you have to be reborn and remade uh, completely through faith and that happens through faith by believing that Jesus is good loving that he died for our sins that he remakes us that we can't do it ourselves It, it comes through faith or trust in him So he's essentially saying then, by applying the the image and the metaphor of of, um, birth, he's saying, you have to do something that you have no power over to be saved. Right? Because we can't be born. None of us chose to be born. We do not have power over our first birth. And so to apply that idea to our second birth, to our conversion, is to say that this is something you can't do. And, And it fits really well with elsewhere. I think it's Mark 10. Jesus says... Uh, this, this duality again of you, it, it's impossible for you to be saved, but not with God. All things are, are possible with, with God. That's kind of what he comes around to here at, um, at, at the end. But this, this is the, the glorious freeing, the kind of tripping us up gospel that we sing about, talk about, and cherish every week as Christians, as, as a community. We are saved through Jesus Christ on the cross, for his, through his work for us on the cross, not by our works. We're saved by him there. Not our own effort, not our own choice, and not our own determination. He saves us objectively, comes from outside of us, and he identifies us as his saved ones outside of us as well. That that identifying doesn't come from within. Later in the passage, Nicodemus says, uh, in verse 4, actually right after, he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he, he's, he's kind of getting it and not getting it at the same time. He's thinking too physically. You know, Jesus is, Jesus is thinking it's a metaphor. There's, there's times actually elsewhere where Jesus will be speaking metaphorically and the, and the disciples will be thinking, well, that's very physically, and Jesus has, has to come around. I think it has to do with uh, death and sleep, isn't it, and when, with Lazarus? He says, well, Lazarus fell asleep, and then they, and then they got there and he said, uh, he's dead, Jesus, and he said... That's what I meant, you know, basically. So, but anyway, it, he's thinking too physically. At the same time, he gets the idea. He feels the tension and weight. Who can do this? Answer, no one. No one can enter their mother's womb a second time. Or if you want to kind of leave the metaphor aside for a second, no one can be saved. No one can be reborn on their own strength. So he comes around in verse 8 here and says, which is again, classic Christ, uh, Jesus here with his, you know, not really answering, but totally answering at the same time. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Spirit and wind are similar uh, Greek words here. It's kind of a play on words. He's saying that the wind blows where it wishes, you hear it sound, you know, so, so it is with people who are, are born again. So this is to say the Spirit determines our new birth and our new identity, not us. You know, when we choose Him, when we choose to respond to His grace, the Spirit's at work there. You know, and when we look at the cross, we see God doing something for us. We don't see a picture of ourselves doing something for Him. Objective, not, not subjective. So our new birth and into God's family as children, that's an identity thing, remember, as, 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 our, as identified children of God adopted into his family is something God works for and predetermines, not something that, that we ultimately do. So the, the, the connection here is this. This is why, going back to how I started, um, the, the connection here with identity is this. If we can't receive our gender or our physical identity as a gift, How can we ever receive our identity as a child of God as a gift? They are connected. If if we see gender, or more broadly speaking, our, our identities as something fluid, how will our salvation also not be fluid in our eyes? It will. It will change. It will be tossed to and fro with the waves. One day it will be there, the next it won't. It will fluctuate with your feelings. Because for you, it will be subjective, not given. See, so much is at stake here. Our very souls, how we perceive God, and what exactly it means to be saved. It's, it's, it's way bigger, and it's way bigger than the gender fluidity issue uh, as well. That was just an example. You know, we could ask, what about our ability to fight and kill sin? Is that fluid? Is that subjective, or is that an objective, fixed thing? Is that something that originates here or something we receive as a gift? You know, Jesus doesn't in in his ministry pat people on the back and say, You can do it. That's not the gospel. He's not our motivational speaker. He promises rather to be with us and in us because he's actually a savior. He gives us something much more substantive than a a speech or some advice. He gives us himself. So we have a different identity, right? Before, without Christ. Sinners without Christ. Now, as Christians, we are sinners saved by grace who are infused with the Holy Spirit. A God who loves good and who works the good out uh, of our lives all the time as we keep in step with that good. So in in regards to something like sexual sin, uh, as an example, this, this part of the battle cannot be overstated. Our ability to overcome sexual sin, or any sin, is inextricably tied to how we perceive our identities as sons and daughters of God. Uh, Neil Anderson, who's a uh, professor out in the West Coast somewhere, I think he still is, he might not be anymore, but uh, wrote in a a book, he wrote, um, Victor of the Darkness, I believe. He he wrote, "It's, it's impossible to behave in a way that's inconsistent with how you view yourself from this Christian perspective. So, you know, a secular psychologist could say this as well. It just means something kind of different. But from a Christian perspective, it's impossible to behave in a way that's inconsistent with how you view yourself. So who are you? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you saved? You know, do do you believe at your core that you're a sinner saved by grace, that you are loved, that you're forgiven, that you have a new name? That you've been purchased back from your old life by the blood of Jesus and you don't belong to yourself anymore, as 1 Corinthians 6 says? That you are an enemy of the devil? Which is kind of an energizing thought, isn't it? You know, the prince of demons hates us. It's like, you're going to be hated. That's a pretty good one. You know, take it. Do you believe that? Is that something that you speak over yourselves, that you hear spoken over yourselves, that you choose to re-believe on a regular basis? And if you don't, are you working hard at belief? that that, the god god said that's what you are that's not you or me saying that that's that's you know me just saying let's let's just look together at what this says and, and not decide for god who we are i think he's got it taken care of god decides he saved us and he said this is what it means now that you're saved this is who you are i'm renaming you that's identity stuff right our names are part of our identity, but, but the Bible says, spiritually speaking, we've been given new names in Christ, and they're, they're spiritually kind of written on our foreheads, quoting the book of Revelation, but uh, it's wonderful imagery. So see, with sexual sin, the, the gospel's not just the power of God to help us not click on pornographic links, uh, many have said before, but, but it, it's the power of God to give us a brand new life entirely to captivate us, to compel us, to recreate us, to give us something more beautiful and energizing to look at. Christ, who is always with us and who identifies us as his sons and daughters. Uh, 1 John 3.1 says, uh, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. written by a Christian to Christians. See, it's a given love, right? See what he's given us, the love he's given us? It's not earned. From a father, familial language, identity language. So we are born into his family, reborn by grace, through faith. This is not of ourselves, it's a gift, something God makes possible. And what kind of love is it? In context, I encourage you to go and read this sometime on your own, but in chapters 3 and 4 of 1 John, it gets very clear. It's sacrificial love. So what he's saying is, Christians, do you see the cross? That's his love for us. And that's where he dies for our sin and makes us who were formerly his enemies, his adopted sons and daughters. That's where he does it. It's not just a decision he makes without any kind of consequence. The consequence is his death. And it's not just kind of a broadly undefined Love, it's a specific kind of love that went to death for another, for another being, us. Love that went to death to bring us back from it. I want to read from Ephesians 1 here, and as I do, I'm mostly just going to read this. I have a couple of comments about it afterwards. But as I do, uh, note how the Apostle Paul here just addresses the church. And a lot of the, a lot of the letters begin this way, with a reminder of who God is, what the gospel is, and who we are because of both of those things. And so look at this language and note the phrase, in him. Think, in Jesus, when you see that phrase. And if you're a believer, be encouraged. If you're not a Christian, believe in this, this type of gospel. And this can be yours today as well. Let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All right, so what he's saying here, essentially, in sum, is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done all of this for us. And this is who we are. So he's basically saying rejoice. Remember this. And he has a lot to say in this letter. But before anything else is said, remember that. Remember that's who you are. First of all, that's who he is and what he has done. Then also remember who you are. This is who you are, church, because of Jesus. So that, that phrase, in him, as maybe you saw, repeats several times. A crucial phrase to understand with New Testament theology. In Christ, in Jesus, we have these things. In his blood, in the fact that he's died for us, we have redemption. We do not have forgiveness. We do not have adoption as sons and daughters. We do not have a seal guaranteeing our future salvation apart from the blood of Christ, apart from Jesus. It's very clear on that. In Christ, we have redemption or this this idea of being purchased back from our old life. We have forgiveness. It's going to be all right. Because of Christ, but this transfer of identity as well that's given as part of this gospel package at uh, at the cross. You know, note it doesn't say anywhere in here, by works you have these things, but rather in Him. It doesn't say by works because people don't work to be born. This is rebirth language. Our identity as saved, loved, forgiven, adopted, sealed people is purchased and determined by a God who loves us and who's outside of us. It's not achieved. Rest in that. You know, do you guys notice that the the only active thing really done by us here in this passage is hearing and believing? That's the only active idea. Otherwise, it's all about God. And just this Indicative idea or just declaration of this newfound reality in Christ. This is not something that's out there, future tense. It is true about you because of what Jesus did for you. But the only thing that we're doing is hearing the word of truth, which is, he defines it, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. You heard it, you put your faith in it, you trusted, and because of what he did for you and your faith in what he did for you, all of this stuff is yours. Lavished grace, changed your status. You're more of a child than you are an employee of God. All these things are true by the blood. Also, remember that uh, it's, and I think this is something it's super easy to, to go here as believers. I do, uh, if you've done that. I mean, don't feel bad about that. Just understand this isn't the right way to think, to blend these things. But remember that it's different to say you're good. Then you are loved. Don't blend those two things. People do it all the time. We talk about identity issues, and if you don't want to hear about sin that much, you think, well, but I want to hear how good. It's not about being good, it's about being loved. Nowhere in this passage does it say we are good. Right? Nowhere does it affirm our inherent goodness. But rather, in spite of that, we are loved. Let's not place something in that's not there, right? If when you want to think about identity, blood-bought sinners. Sinners, in spite of that, loved unto death, more than we can ever possibly fathom. But don't add in, add in the, uh, the goodness. Because as Jesus says in his ministry, you who are evil, right, in context of this, you who are evil, who know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God? So, It's both. If we're good, we have no need for Jesus, no need for rebirth, no need for blood to be spilt on our behalf. What does Romans 5 say? It's not that we were good when he died for us, it's that we were evil. Like, no one ever does that, dies for an evil person, an enemy. That's the whole point of the gospel. We have to feel that or it gets less beautiful. It's less needed, less scandalous. That movie we, that song we sing, "Oh Scandalous Night, is that what it's called, Peter? It's not scandalous. If, if God's dying for good people, where's the scandal? Where's the offense? We need that side uh, as, as well. Charles Spurgeon says we have to avoid a, a sugar-coated gospel, but rather, rather seek a gospel that rips up, wounds, and even kills, for that's the gospel that makes alive again. The gospel was what ripped up and wounded and killed Jesus. Or or we could say the gospel is the good news of that for sinners. And relatedly for us who believe in Christ, we are carried into that experience. We are in our old selves, as Galatians 2 says, killed with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. See how much more comprehensive this gospel is than just saying, yeah, you're a pretty good person. The gospel pats you on the back, washes you a little bit, but then sets you as the same person out on the journey of faith. As if you were like a, you know, Paul Reichman 2.0 or something. You know, it's not Paul Reichman 2.0. It's new name Paul Reichman. Right? Brand new creation. Brand new Chris Walker. It's different. A gospel needs to rip, wound, kill. It's a complete start over. And that's our identity. That's the focus of the Christian faith, not a slight shift, but a brand new start, entirely—a resurrection, rather. All right. So, where does this kind of grace get us? Um, we'll keep talking here. Uh, I wanted to um, reference a, a, a movie. You guys seen the movie Spanglish? Anybody? As Peter said, deep track earlier this morning. But um, Adam, anybody? Not many, huh? 2004, here we go, a couple of people. It's, uh, it's going way back a little bit. But um, it's an Adam Sandler movie, not your typical Adam Sandler film, uh, if you guys have seen it. It's more melancholy, uh, melancholic Adam Sandler. But I, I really liked it. I know some people didn't, but I thought it was pretty great. Uh, but it's basically about an immigrant's mother-daughter relationship and uh, th- their experiences growing up in America. She was a housekeeper, and so she raised her daughter in that home which she befriends their kids and kind of gets Americanized and all of this and struggles with that and they fight a ton. It's tumultuous. It's really their story. There's other threads that kind of help tell that story. It's basically a movie about them. It ends really well, well, actually kind of difficult, really difficult, with their relationship. And at the very end, she's 18 and she's applying to colleges um, and things are mended. Uh, We glean uh, from how she's writing, and uh, she, she writes this letter, and there's this narrated voice kind of over a picture of her in the bus, and she writes this, and this is, the la- I believe, the last words of the film. It has to do with identity, uh, so I'm just going to read it. Follow along. She says, I've been overwhelmed by your encouragement to apply to your university and your list of scholarships available to me, though as I hope this essay shows, your acceptance, while it would thrill me, will not define me. My identity rests firmly and happily on one fact. I am my mother's daughter. Thank you, Christina Moreno. So do you see what grace does? It it makes us and it gives us the ability to say things like that. See what a proper kind of objective definition of identity does for us? If familial identity can make a person say and feel that, how much more will our identity in the Son of God, the creator of the universe and the creator of our bodies and souls, our true Father. Grace makes us humble and extremely confident at the same time. Grace will make us humble and extremely confident at the same time. We'll, we'll say things like that. Humble because we've done nothing, nothing, nothing. Our salvation is best described as a birth experience. It just happened. God intended it. So how can we be proud about that? And yet extremely confident because we believe God is with us. He's in us. We actually are, in a very real sense, children of God. It emboldens us. And who can take that away? Who can say unlovable when God says loved? And so being strong in our identity in in the gospel, uh, makes us write to colleges, for example, you know, uh, like like this. And, and and this is what I want you to see. It came from identity. Something she didn't work for. Did she choose to be born in, with that mother? You know, her, her reflection on her mother, her reflection on her parents, gave her the humility. It gave her the boldness. It gave her this ability to not really care what other people think that much, really much at all. And that's what grace does. Grace frees us up to love others and put them first and to care less about, a little less about what other people think, to not have to win every debate and be accepted into all kinds of things because we have the greatest love that there is. and it, it, it actually does that. It actually changes lives. Uh, it, it takes insecure, debative, Religious people, and it makes them talk like this. Just think about this in spiritual terms. It does it all the time. Is that your story? Do you want that to be your story? Larry Osborne has said, "When when we truly get the gospel, there is no one we need to impress and nothing we need to prove. Right? God says loved. God says saved. God says you'll never lose it. God says adopted. God says forgiven. God says cleansed. God says I'm giving you the ability, my grace within you to kill that sin. God says new name. God says enemy of the devil. Who can disagree? Who can threaten? What God says justified or made righteous to, who can can disagree? Who can threaten that? And our hearts will try. The enemy will try. But but what a rock-solid foundation to just exist off of, right? And to live off of. When we truly get the fact that God loved us unto death and made us his child, there's no one we need to impress because that's not how we're saved Enough we need to prove because it's not how we're saved. We're not saved by works. We're saved by new birth that God makes possible through his son. So to borrow language then from uh, the Spanglish girl here, um, our our identity should rest happily and firmly on one fact. I am God's son. I'm God's daughter. I'm a blood-bought sinner, loved unto death, and now adopted into God's family. That is what we are. We are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, creator of the universe, and Savior of our souls and bodies. That's who we are. That's who you are. And I love how First John underlines that. You know, he, just, he says it, we are, we are children of God. Then he says, you know, that is what you are. Don't forget. You know, and so I think the hard work of belief, I've said this before, I know it's true for me. The biggest, one of the biggest battles you'll fight as a Christian, period, in life, there'll be a lot of battles, a lot of things you'll face. But one of the biggest battles will be starting to believe the opposite of those kinds of statements yeah you know, I, I can't and this is this is the power of God, too. This is why we're a million miles from works here. We start talking about killing sin and addressing shame. And I mean, you're we're talking about identity being not just true but powerful. I can't tell you as a, this is, again, this is me speaking, but also as a pastor who's counseled many people through sin addictions and shame issues and all kinds of stuff. I can't tell you how many times when I listen, and then I ask the question, some form of, do you believe that God loves you? I cannot tell you how many times I get a no. From Christians who know that they're loved, they say, and I appreciate the honesty, say no, I don't believe that I'm loved right now. See, that's the crux of the matter. This is a gospel. Sin is a gospel. It's a belief issue. You know, this Christina Moreno here, it wasn't you know, try harder to be humble. It was, I'm humble because my identity is wrapped up in being my mother's daughter. If you want to shape your character, start with a cross. If you want to shape your character, know what God thinks of you. Know who you were and who you are now. This is an anti-shaping character. It's just saying, where does it come from? Uh, you, you, we, we cannot, it, it, and there's a place to say stop it, uh, but that's that's a distant secondary and a tertiary thing uh, to meditation on what God has done and who we are. Uh, we are deeply, you guys are deeply loved today. And um, and let, let me just ask you, do you believe it? And if you say, I don't know if I do or not really, that's okay. It's a safe place. You're normal. Welcome to the human experience or the Christian experience. Um, but just don't don't stay there. You know, you're not based on how much you feel it. You're based on it just being done. You know, this is declared for you. Not held out like a carrot; it's declared, "You are a child of God." And, and I think we really need to repeat these statements to us—not not in the, the comfortable days—that's easy. In the throes of sin, as you're sinning, and you know better, or right afterwards. You know, if we if we can't affirm these types of things immediately after sin, our gospel's way too small. It's way too impotent. If you think you got to go a while without sinning, go a while to kind of feel better about yourself before you say you're a child of God, that's no gospel. That's saying that your your sin is stronger than the cross, that it's stronger than the blood. It's saying he didn't have the power to make that available, grace available to you right now. This is we got to equip our minds, right? And, And whether it's sexual sin or any kind of sin, equip our minds. In In the throes of it, amidst it, after it, immediately, say no, this is the, the devil wants to, wants me to identify with this sin my old self does, but i 'm going to go here instead. Um, I am even now even now, this is what makes the cross so beautiful and scandalous, even now i 'm saved, even now'm grace is sufficient. my status before God is no, is no different than before I was sinning, no different. If you don 't think that. I have good news for you. The gospel's a lot bigger than you walked in and you thought. Uh, Nothing you can do will will take away God's love for you. It's faithful, it's forever, it's eternal. And so this last admonition here is um, do not, the Bible says this too, do not believe the, the lies that tell you otherwise. Satan would love to preoccupy you guys and me with the idea that your identity comes from within you subjectively, which will then lead you to work really hard to save and salvifically identify yourself. But at the same time, sadly, keep you a million miles from Jesus as you look kind of spiritual at the same time. So the, the, the call here is to, to see what, and this is from 1 John 3, see what love God has for us that led him to die that we might live. Look at it. See it. See what love led him to make us children of God and then underline that. In, underline in your Bibles, if, if you do that, but just underline that in your heart. That is what I am. That's who I am right now. Whatever happened yesterday or this morning in a previous life uh, that really, before conversion, just whatever it is, that is who I am. The Bible identifies it, not me. So don't listen to yourself don't listen to the devil, don't listen to the world, you know, uh, just let God identify you and tell you who you are. And that is a sinner who's been blood-bought and saved by grace. And so now your ultimate identity is not sinner, um, even though we still are. It's saint, it's child, It's, uh, it's, it's forgiven son and daughter. So let's pray. God, thank you for uh, for the gospel today. That is, uh, it's true, and it's the power of God to not just save, but to identify. Um, Father, I pray that um, you just save us today. Save us from ourselves, from lies, from our sins, from shame, from addictions. Uh, save us from save us from uh, false truths. That and, and a lot of you know we're talking about this stuff today. The reality is we we can't. We can't get in the truth without the Bible. We can't know what you think about us without the Bible. We just can't. Where else do we get it? Objectively and with rock-solid accuracy. Where do we hear about how much you love us? We have to go to your Word. So God, equip us uh, to read it well, uh, spur us on to that in community and alone, and help us to listen to truth and not lies. Uh, Thank you that you died for us and that that's enough, that our status before you now is children of light. No longer, as First Thessalonians 5 says, not children of darkness, but we are children of light. Uh, thank you for making that happen. In Christ's name, amen.